0: We spent some time earlier this week talking about the politics surrounding DACA the deferred action for the children of whatever it's called I can't think of it off the top of my head but this idea, this executive action from President Barack Obama that basically, it it did two things it was a prosecutorial decision and an exercise of prosecutorial discretion to refrain from deporting the children of illegal immigrants right but it did more than that which you know that that first part isn't necessarily unconstitutional pretty falls within the the prosecutorial discretion that all executives have the second part is the real problem the second part was it set up a process by which people who fell into that category children of illegal immigrants were able to obtain papers and thereby de facto legal status, that is something that the executive cannot do constitutionally on his own. And that's the real problem with DACA. And so we spent some time talking earlier this week about the politics of it, the, the, the strategy and the timing and the rhetoric that's been employed by Donald Trump uh, surrounding his decision earlier this week to reverse that executive action. But the one thing we haven't spent really any time this week talking about is the merit of the idea itself, DACA itself. What are we to do with these kids? And they're not kids anymore. You know, a lot of them are grown adults, but the children of illegal immigrants who were brought here, you know, due to no fault of their own, not under their own agency, right? What are we to do? With These folks that is the question and it's a question that has to be answered It's not enough just to object to what has either been done or proposed so far We have to have a workable solution to the problem moving forward Closing argument my name is Walter Hudson Twin Cities News Talk AM 1130 1035 FM TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app Two ways to stream the program we're here 9 to 11 weeknights Appreciate you joining us this Friday evening 651-989-5855 if you have some ideas regarding what we ought to do with the children of illegal immigrants and with their parents as well. Brad Ullman taking your calls and producing the show. There's a little bit of a profile in the Washington Post regarding one such child of illegal immigrants who has grown into an adult. It reads, Zion Durgantara can easily recall his first day of school in the United States. It was a bright, sunny Tuesday, and terrorists hijacked four commercial planes. Class for Indonesian-born Durgen Dara, then 12, was canceled as parents scrambled to pick up fellow students in Philadelphia. The city was bracketed midway between the ash cloud-choking Manhattan and a flaming hole punched through the Pentagon. To the West of Philadelphia United 93 disintegrated into a Pennsylvania field i realized there was evil in this world and you have to fight for what is right dirgantara now 28 told the washington post fluent in indonesian and english he enlisted in the army in march of 2016 and swore an oath to defend the united states he has drilled as a reservist cargo specialist since last september but Durgantara's future in the military and the country now hinges on the ability of Congress to find a way to replace the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. President Trump's decision to end the Obama-era measure sparked fears among advocates that nearly 800,000 immigrants who have lived illegally in the United States since they were children would be subject to removal once their government-issued work permits expire under DACA. It would be a loss for the army to bar these recruits, especially as the service struggles to meet recruiting goals. And experts say the relatively small number of foreign recruits have skills with outsized importance to the military's mission. The move could affect not only the children of immigrants who crossed the southern border illegally, but those who overstayed visas at a young age with no option but to remain here. And it goes on in like fashion. And so this is the context in which, you know, dealing with not in the abstract, not in, in the theoretical or the philosophical, but in the, in the actual case of individual people, person after person, who fits these, these circumstances, these descriptions, as being the, the child of somebody who came here illegally, who was brought here, who now serves a role in this country in some capacity, up to and including serving in the armed forces. What are we to do with them? And the reason why I ask is because I think that you know, there are a lot of very valid concerns in play on the conservative side of this debate. The rule of law is a huge one, and I'm a huge advocate for it. You know, I'm, I'm such a fan of the rule of law and the importance of the rule of law that I am willing to endure, to some degree, I am willing to endure the enforcement of laws with which I fundamentally disagree in order to uphold the rule of law, because the rule of law is that important, you know. It, it, by by way of example, let's say, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of what to pick here. We'll say drug laws, right? Not a big fan of the drug war, by any stretch of the imagination. Don't like it. Don't think it's a good idea. Victimless crime. And you know, analogous to prohibition, not just analogous, basically it, it is prohibition. It's just prohibition by a, by a different name or uh, arrayed around a different substance. Not a good plan, not a good policy. That said, those laws, so long as they are on the books, properly ought to be enforced uniformly in order to uphold the rule of law. And the proper way to address the flaws with our drug laws and our flaws with the drug war is to change the law, to elect people for the purpose of changing that and then doing so through the political process. In similar fashion, when it comes to immigration, I may think and Democrats may think and other libertarians may think that we ought to have a complete reworking of how we view our immigration process, what the laws of the land are, that the laws ought to be totally different from what they are today. But I don't believe that that gives you carte blanche to as an act of not just civil disobedience, because the thing about civil disobedience is when you when you protest a law by breaking it, you do so acknowledging that you are subject to criminal prosecution, right? You're that You're going to see the consequences. When Martin Luther King Jr., broke the law in acts of civil disobedience to call attention to the injustice of the laws that were on the books during the civil rights era he did so knowing he was going to go to jail and he went he went he didn't act as though it was it, it was somehow you know immoral for him to be placed there he it was all part of the strategy right to accept the fact that the, the law is what it is, and, and I'm protesting the law by breaking it. That's one thing, but that's not what's being advocated for here by many of the, the, the folks on the left. What they're advocating for is letting people get away with breaking the law. They're advocating for a lack of consequence for having broken the law. Now, I'm not a big fan of that. I, I think there ought to be consequences, but the question becomes, what should those consequences be? Should it be the same for everybody? Should we go about, and you have to think about, like, the logistical process of how this would even work, right? Should we come up with a process through which we are going to round up every single illegal immigrant? And and then what? To send them back to Mexico? Because here's the thing. They didn't all come from Mexico, right? So you're going to start dumping you know, people from Guatemala and Mexico? You're going to start dumping people from Brazil or uh, Afghanistan or wherever they happen to come from? You're going to start just dump everybody in Mexico? You think Mexico is going to sit by and let that happen? Uh, and, and physically, how are you going to get them there? Buses, planes, parachutes, you know, uh, boats? How are we going to do this? How much money is it going to cost to do this if we're going to engage in this? And then you get down to the case-by-case basis of somebody like this guy, Zion Durgantara, a currently serving reservist in the U.S. Armed Forces. Should he be treated the same as a MS-13 gangster, right? Or should we be taking a look at circumstances? Should we be taking a look at, uh, on a case-by-case basis, who these individuals are, what they are doing— and the degree to which they are actually contributing to society when we decide which consequence, not whether they're going to face consequence, but which consequence is going to be applied to them. I think it's a question worth asking.
1: I'm not sure why he didn't sign up for citizenship through joining, because uh, the day before you graduate from basic training, like you can take the oath of citizenship. And it's a very specific program within the military and so i don't know why he didn't get signed up for that program. Part of the problem with the military is that you generally make the most crucial decision about your career at the beginning right. with the least amount of knowledge right. about what's actually going to happen. Yeah. And you're uh, you just got a recruiter there saying, "Oh yeah, it'll be okay. It'll be okay when it's yeah. not." Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, i thought about that as well. I had always
0: understood and I'm glad you brought it up. I'd always understood that by virtue of serving in the armed forces, you basically become a citizen. But apparently it's more complicated
1: than that. Yeah, I mean, the difference – well, I don't know. I don't know what program you signed up for. Um, And, like, sure, like when you go to college, you may have little information about how life is actually going to play out. But the difference between the military and your life as as you manage it is that the military doesn't care about your desires. Right. military doesn't care that you made the wrong decision. You have time to switch in a private capacity, but you don't in the military.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's just it. Uh, two folks who have a unconventional approach to this issue are the dreaded Koch brothers. The Koch brothers, the political network of libertarian billionaires Cr- Charles and David Koch, is poised to back a bill protecting young undocumented immigrants from deportation. Spokespeople for the Koch Network confirmed to the Daily Beast that it will press Congress for a legislative fix to the recently rescinded Obama-era program known as Deferred Action on uh, Childhood Arrivals. Uh, Continuing, the Seminar Network is committed to working with and encouraging lawmakers to come together to pass a durable solution into law, said James Davis, a spokesman for that network. In a Wednesday email, our country has benefited tremendously from a history of welcoming people of all cultures and backgrounds. This is a hallmark of free and open societies. It's, it's, see, that's, that strikes me as the wrong argument. That's the thing is, on both sides of this, there's t- way too much generalization. Like on the, on the, on the enforcement side, it's deport them all, right? Is effective I mean that's effectively what it is. I, I don't know I haven't heard an articulable alternative to deport them all as an enforcement action because anything that anybody suggests that's short of that is called amnesty to one degree or another. you know if you say, well we're gonna we're gonna put them on the back of the line and you know we're gonna fine them in all these all these proposals that have been put forward in the past, It gets objected to, some hardliner on immigration is going to object to it and call it amnesty. If it's anything short of, round them up and ship them back. So that's the broad generalization on the enforcement side. On the other side, you have the broad generalization of everybody's a wonderful human being entitled to go wherever they want, including the United States, under any circumstances, no matter who they are or what their intentions are or or what they do once they get here. Both of those positions strike me as utterly absurd and seem to want to circumvent the hard work of looking at individual cases, which is the direction that I think we need to go. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Sometimes it's a lot easier to express your dismay with the status quo. Than it is to come up with an articulable alternative, to come up with a solution. In other words, it's really easy to, to uh, complain about the problem, not so easy to craft a solution that actually works. I'm putting it to you when it comes to DACA. You know, we've talked a lot about the politics of DACA, we've talked a lot about the, the rhetoric and the strategy and the insane reaction from the left and the uh, <laughs> bedeviling strategic approach from the White House. And all that is interesting, all that is worth talking about, but we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the actual issue itself, of what is it that we're supposed to do with these children of illegal immigrants. 651-989-5855, the number to join us on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Let's go to Jeremy in Anoka. Welcome to the program. Hey,
2: great show tonight. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while, and even though I'm not, um a hundred percent informed on the, the details of it, I guess. Um, if they're, if they're children, children, like they're, you know, under 18 and their parents are here illegally, then the parents should be deported. And I feel that the children should go with the parents. If they're children that are over the age of 18 and the parents are here illegally, then, then I would leave it up to the children to make it the, the children's choice legally, you know, they're of adult age. And I, I think that if, 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 let's say it's a situation where the, there's a child and for some reason the parents, I don't know, they were, they were here illegally and then they're no longer around, maybe they be passed away or they can't be found, then the children should stay here. I, I think a lot of it to me is tethered to the parents. Mm-hmm. and the age of the children i mean i i am a little bit dismayed by the hand wringing and this and that i saw a thing on, on social media the other day where someone said the president is stealing children's dreams and i thought okay all right let's let's calm down a <laughs> little bit I mean, right it, 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 it's it's the, the hyperbole is getting a little out of hand with that and you know i have a i guess an extended family member who is a a bilingual uh, immigration attorney, actually. And, uh-huh. and of course, you know, she's on social media talking about, you know, telling her clients and whatnot, even though you you, know, you can't vote, but you can still, you know, voice your opinion. And, you know, this is a sad time for everyone and this and that. And I, I don't know if it's a, I mean, if it's a ch- I guess that's what the other thing I don't understand. I'm hearing these situations where, you know, people are adults who came here as children and, you know, ended up turning into like productive adults in society and this and that, Mm -hmm. basically highlighting how it is possible that someone can come here as a child of an illegal immigrant and forge a good life. But I mean.
0: I've always found it odd. I've always found it odd, this argument, you know, and you've alluded to it that if you enforce the law, it's going to be inconvenient for the people who broke it. Right. You know, it's like that's <laughs> right. that, that's not something – that that's not an argument that we would apply to any other area of law, right? Like you wouldn't say, well, you know, this guy murdered somebody and the law calls for him to be arrested and prosecuted and, and, and potentially imprisoned. But if we do so, we're going to be breaking up his family because he's right. got a little boy at home, you and know? That,
2: that That's a fantastic point because to, to my mind is – Hey, I have two children. I have a 22-month-old and a 9-month-old. And if something were to happen where, I mean, let's just say something was an accident um, or whatever, but I, if I had to go to jail or prison, right? I mean, some my children, they don't get to, you know, it's not like they magically get transported into right. a cushy family in right. a diner right. where right. it's – you know what I mean? It's not <laughs> – well, and I know, surely, I, I, they're, they're... I saw one analogy where it said that uh, the, it's like there it was it was, it was pro dot pro uh, getting rid of Docker or whatever, where it said that if a, if an adult steals a bike mm-hmm. and and let and, and let and gives it to the kid and the kid rides it, right. That magically it's the kid it's the kid's bike because they rode it for a right. while. Right, right, right. It just uh, It's it's baffling
0: to me. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is. Yeah, I appreciate your call, Jeremy. That's the thing that's that's odd is that it's what's absent from one side of the discussion, and it's the left side of the discussion, of course, is any sort of acknowledgement for of the government's responsibility for putting us in this position in the first place, right? So, so like in other words when that that person whoever that was that said that donald trump is stealing children's dreams which i just have to i just have to applaud the attempt there in terms of a, a rhetorical uh device that's that's fantastic well done but you know for for a person to say something like that is to put the responsibility on trump for something that he he didn't have the authority to do anything about until january of this year right you're talking about people who have spent who've been here since they were 3 years old and now they're like in their 20s so you're talking about like a 20 year problem that nobody has done anything about and because donald trump decides he's going to enforce the law he's the one who's stealing children's dreams what about the previous administrations the previous congresses who have sat by and done absolutely nothing to either enforce the law or change it and thereby provide the, the stability, the much-sought stability that folks are looking for, where they know their situation, they know what to expect, they know that the law is going to be enforced or that it is going to be different than it is today. You know that's, something that, that's a responsibility that falls upon each and every elected lawmaker Going back decades, it's not the fault or the responsibility solely of Donald Trump. Let's go to David in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi there. Oh, uh, I just like to say, you know, when, when someone's illegal comes across the border, they take a chance. Right. I mean, if they haven't been caught in five years, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's as good. But they living in the shadows like that is no life. I mean. It, it just surprises me that most of these uh, illegal uh, families don't seek don't seek uh, citizenship, you know, and uh, especially for the dreamers that they call. I mean, they're like they're su- such outstanding citizens. I mean, why aren't they citizens? I mean, citizens of America,
0: you know? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if you. My, my immediate guess would be that. It, Exposing that trying to pursue citizenship would expose them to potential immigration enforcement action.
3: Well, I know, but they got they got uh, pretty much immunity under the act.
0: You know. Oh, I see. Train. what you're saying. So, like at this point, where you've got the opportunity. Yeah, they saying. have the opportunity. I right. mean, they
3: got economy, and how much do we have? To pay a lot of subsidies to this program, or is there a lot know. of entitlements? I don't know. Uh, you know, I just wonder how much it costs. You know. And you got 800,000? <laughs> yeah. That's a huge amount of illegal immigrants. Yeah. And it, it, it's not just them, it's their families. Right. So initially, you're talking like 5 million people that are illegal here. Yeah, you know, which, you're giving them
0: amnesty. Which I seems mean, like a low number to me because yeah. I, I recall it being in the double digits, the estimates before. That it was more along the lines of like eleven or higher million illegal uh, immigrants.
3: Well, that's just crazy. I mean, it's just, I mean, our country right now we're getting hit by hurricanes and wildfires and nuclear war, and right. <laughs> it's not like we can uh, we can't afford all this. You know, we gotta slash the government spending, and you know, the, seems like the government doesn't want or the government doesn't want to make the tough decisions. You got to make tough decisions. No, yeah, you know, you yeah. know what kind of, when it comes to, um, to reforming, everyone talks about reforming, you know, the immigration, pro- you know, problems in America, but they take tough decisions. Yeah. I mean, it takes like, I mean, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do with all these people? Right. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I, I think Trump, sh- I think it, you know, you keep the cream of the crop, you know, and uh, I don't know, you can't just keep everybody. You know, that's
0: yeah. what I feel All about right. it. Appreciate your call, David. Thanks for, for listening tonight. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. During the break, I got a message, a private message from a listener, John, who raises a good point related to the... Supreme Court decision, Minnesota Supreme Court decision in the dispute between Governor Mark Dayton and the legislature where his majesty, Lord Dayton, the first of his name, conqueror of legislative authority, breaker of constitutional chains, decided that uh, he was going to line item veto the legislative budget and basically just cancel the republic, Just, just end it. Got an interesting, uh, interesting comment from uh, our listener, John, here. He says, I'm wondering if the state legislature may now defund the governor's office and override his veto with the necessary majority. That's a solid point, right? Because effectively, what Governor Dayton did, you know, his argument was, hey, I've got this authority, right? Like I have the line item veto authority, and all I did was veto a line item just so happens that the effect of that line item veto is that we don't have a, a, the legislative branch, but I have the authority to do that, right? In similar fashion, the legislature theoretically could do exactly what John suggests. They could defund the governor's office, defund the executive branch, defund all the departments, right? Just shut them all down, defund the Department of Education, defund, you know, th- this could be fun actually, right? We're just going to go through and, and just eliminate the budgets of all these offices and then when the governor vetoes it override his veto and then say hey you know it's look it's our authority to to override vetoes and if the effect of that is we don't have an executive branch anymore oh well oh well and see what the courts have to say about that it would be interesting of course it's you know a hypothetical that's not likely to manifest itself here in Minnesota, we would first have to find uh, super majorities, Republican super majorities in this state, which, as much as I would love to see it, uh, is certainly not something that I'm putting my money on. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream the program. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us late on a Friday evening. You can catch up with the podcast right there in your iHeartRadio app. Just do a search for Closing Argument, 651-989-5855. If you want to join us tonight, Brad Ullman taking those calls, producing the show. From the Star Tribune, a day after credit reporting company Equifax disclosed that criminals had stolen vital data about 143 million Americans, it had somehow managed to leave much of the public in the dark about their personal exposure. How they should protect themselves, and what Equifax plan to do for those affected. The breach is unquestionably serious. It exposed crucial pieces of personal data that criminals could use to commit identity theft, from social security numbers and birth dates to address histories and legal names. That data, the crown jewels of personal information, in the words of independent credit analyst John uh, Usheimer, can't be changed. And once it's in circulation, it's basically out there forever. But Equifax's response has satisfied almost no one. Consumer complaints or consumers have complained of jammed phone lines and unformed representatives. An Equifax website set up to help people determine their exposure looked like a scam to some and provided inconsistent and unhelpful information to others. Congress planned hearings. Elders Olson, a 47-year-old technical manager in Scotts Valley, California, called a hotline multiple times and was disconnected, entered the last six digits of his social security number into Equifax's emergency website, and finally spoke with a call center manager. He still doesn't know whether his information has been compromised. I don't think I've gotten hold of a person that actually cares, he said. Now they're fumbling to tell people what's going on, but they don't really know what's going on. Equifax plays a key role in the financial industry, making this this breach more alarming than previous ones at Yahoo or retailers. It's a storehouse of personal information, like how much people owe on their houses and whether they have court judgments against them. So, you know, obviously alarming. You know, I find myself wondering personally, am I affected by this? Apparently there's no way to find out, which is kind of alarming. But here's the silver lining of this if the, if there is one in my view. And I'm and yes, I'm going to try to spin this with a libertarian angle. Better this than a government equivalent, right? Like the role a proper rights respecting or rights protecting government has a role in a situation like that in a, a, a situation like this and that is to adjudicate disagreements, right? In other words, to have the courts to settle the legal disputes that are surely going to come in the wake of this breach of information and to enforce contracts. The only way, a prerequisite for government fulfilling that role fairly and objectively and dispassionately is for government to act as the referee and not as the player. That's why it's important to to have government resigned or contained to its its third-party role rather than to intrude and become a competitor to something like Equifax, right? We don't want the government to become a credit rating agency. And although I have not seen that specifically advocated for as of yet, you can bet it's on somebody's mind, right? You know, oh, well, clearly this is an argument for nationalizing the credit ratings, right? For having a national system at least in this case, there's somewhere you can turn, right? Like you can go, you can decide to become a customer of one of the many identity protection companies, right? Pay however much a month in order to have your identity monitored and to get alerts and potentially have some services in the case of your identity being stolen. You can you can go that route. Uh, you can sue. You could try to become part of a class action lawsuit or individually sue Equifax if you can demonstrate that you have been that a tort has taken place against you. That's an option that you have because you're dealing with a private company. If it was the government that had been the victim of a breach like this, you would have no recourse. It would be too bad, so sad, and whoever was responsible would probably end up getting a promotion. That's how these things work. So, you know, it could be worse is basically what I'm trying to tell you. And uh, it's th- this is an example of why it's important that we maintain the rightful rule of government and not let it encroach past that. An example of government encroaching past its rightful rule comes to us from Seattle. As reported in the Star Tribune, a federal appeals court has temporarily blocked Seattle's first-in-the-nation law, allowing drivers of ride-hailing companies such as Uber and Lyft to unionize over pay and working conditions. Now, that first paragraph alone ought to signal that there's a problem here. I'm going to read it again. A federal appeals court has temporarily blocked Seattle's first-in-the-nation law. What does the law do? Allowing drivers of ride-hailing companies such as Uber and Lyft to unionize over pay and working conditions. I was unaware that the ability to unionize required permission from government. Like, if I want to join a union, if I want to form a union, if I want to join a club, If I want to join any association whatsoever, if I want to be in common cause with other individuals who happen to share my occupation, what is standing in my way?
1: I think it's because Uber probably challenged the unionizers in court, whatever their organization was. It goes. It goes beyond that. I wish it was that
0: because oh. because that that would be defensible. It goes beyond that. A three-judge panel of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said Friday it was blocking the law pending an appeal by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which challenged the law on behalf of the companies. The judges offered no explanation for why they granted the organization's request to block the law until the case is decided, but the standards for issuing such an order typically include a determination that the appealing party is likely to win the case and that it is likely to suffer irreparable harm unless the court steps in. Uh, Let's see. Oh, here we go. This is is what the law did. The 2015 law requires companies, requires companies, that hire or contract with drivers of taxis for hire transportation companies and app-based services to bargain with them if a majority show that they want to be represented. So that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a mandate. What it does is, is is it opens the door for union organizations to come in and and organize a vote, quote unquote, right? And we saw this happen with uh what was it? childcare providers here in the state of Minnesota. We saw it happen with a $15 minimum wage. Right. Where it's not an actual it's not like they actually go out and poll all the people who work in that field. What they do is is they organize a representation of hand-picked, pe- hand-picked people who show up, who generally speaking, because they show up, wants to unionize. Yep. And then if a majority of them vote to do it, by law, the, the employers are now compelled to negotiate with that union. That is horrendous. Now, look, I don't have a problem, and I've said it before, I don't have a problem with the, the concept of unions as such you know, the idea of, like, a guild, right? Like, the way I envision it is, you know, you have the Lollipop Guild, right? And he, we here at the Lollipop Guild, we make damn fine lollipops. And each and every person who is who is uh, certified by our union as an official Lollipop Guild member, you can trust our brand that they're going to bring a certain standard to bear in their lollipop crafting uh, wherever, they, wherever they happen to be employed. If you have an organization that, brands itself in that way, and then sells its services collectively to employers in a condition of free association, that is 100% above board and I'm all for it. I think it's a great idea, actually. It's fantastic. But this idea that we're going to pass laws that compel employers to negotiate with unions that they have no desire to actually do business with, that is a violation of individual rights and should not be Tolerated. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com.
1: It seems like being
0: an actor in Hollywood, either in movies or television, is, is the one occupation, or a singer, I suppose, entertainment, the entertainment industry, a performer specifically they're the only ones who seem to have this immunity. You don't you don't hear too much from like key grips in terms of their political opinion. But actors, singers, performers they, they seem to have this unique premise, this unique capacity, this unique assumption that we're all interested in what they have to say about politics. And it's it's really bizarre because it doesn't apply to any other occupation, it doesn't even like I say, even in the same industry. You know, if you were to if you were to shift the camera over to the the guy who's in charge of the script, right?
1: Like, and you would ask him about his political bit. Nobody would care. Nobody would care. Well, it, that could be because like world famous actors who are very talented are hard to come by, and therefore have a little bit more privilege. Whereas people who want to work on a movie set are a dime a dozen. Right, but I mean the the that privilege. I don't know if that privilege necessarily
0: extends to the rest of us. In other words, what I'm saying is is that I don't I don't actually care about, let's say, Jennifer Lawrence, She's sure. the one who's who we're about to talk about here. I don't care about her political opinion any more than I care about the key grips or the script managers or you know what the director or whoever. They're all in the same boat, which is just a guy on the street, right? Like that's not their expertise. So while she may have a certain amount of privilege within the context of Hollywood itself, because for that market reason, because of the talent, because of the, the value that she brings to a set or whatever the case may be, it doesn't translate to my – like, in my living room when I'm watching that interview on the television, she doesn't get gain purchase in my home. Like, right. I'm not going to be like, oh, I guess I got to listen to her now because she's Jennifer Lawrence.
1: Well – I mean, you could analyze it the same way as how Colin Kaepernick is being treated and reacted to, because he is in a privileged position. Like he's, there's not too many people who can play quarterback at, in the NFL. You know, there's maybe 90 people who, who are on rosters right now at most. Um, but he is totally dismissed because as we, I think in, in that article that we had from the Mises Institute a few weeks ago, like. NFL fans don't want to hear his political opinions. Right. So why is the same not applied to Hollywood actors? Well, I, th- I think it is. I, and that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. But they at still here. get jobs. They still get
0: jobs, but it's because, like, with Kaepernick in particular, I think it's both specifically what he chose, how he chose to express himself. You know, he didn't just, like, criticize an opinion or say, I don't like this candidate. Yeah. He disrespected the flag of the country. It's, it's a higher, it's a bigger deal. It's even debatable if you disrespect the flag, but. But, but that's the perception, right? Yeah. So, so that perception is a bigger deal to people than, you know, Jennifer Lawrence talking about how bad Trump is. And also, there's also the value proposition side of it in terms of what value is Colin Kaepernick bringing to the table as a quarterback in the NFL versus the value that Jennifer Lawrence is bringing to the table as an Oscar winning actress in a particular film, like his, his cog in the overall NFL machine is relatively small compared to hers in in Hollywood. But be that as it may. So the latest thing from Jennifer Lawrence, this comes to us from Newsbusters. In an interview with Channel 4, a British public service television network, I love how it's Channel 4, like the government owned. They've got like, I don't know how many channels they got, but 4 is one of them. American actress Jennifer Lawrence blamed the recent hurricanes on Donald Trump's voters because they didn't believe in man-made climate change. During the lengthy interview in her uh, on her movie Mother, with an exclamation point, the conversation turned political about halfway through. After discussing the alleged pay gap between men and women, the interviewer asked Lawrence about climate change and the political climate in America— That's the thing. The media plays a role in this as well. Like, the questions get asked. And I think a part of the reason why the celebrities think that we care about their opinions is because the media is asking them for their opinions. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're there to interview them about a movie, and somehow it turns to, like, the gender pay gap and Trump voters and hurricane. Like, what? What does that have to do with—I mean, I can understand if the movie was about that, like, if you're interviewing— you know, the 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 cast of spotlight or the cast of the the uh, the big short or whatever where the actual subject matter of the film is political or economic or whatever the case may be, but just randomly in, in when you're interviewing somebody for like an art house flick to be like, so what do you think about the gender pay gap and blah, blah, blah? Kind of absurd. This is what she had to say. I mean, when the director was asked about the film why it was so dark, he said, It's a mad time to be alive. And there is certainly an end of days feeling about it for many people in America who would say, "Uh, perhaps it's truer there at a moment than anywhere else. It's scary. You know, it's this new language that's forming. I don't even recognize it. It's also scary to know that climate change is due to human activity and we continue to ignore it. And the only voice that we really have is through voting, Lawrence said. And it's just drones on and on and on and on and on and on. on. Jenny, sweetheart, just acts. That's all we need from you is to just act. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 9 to 11 weeknights we'll see you on Monday. Or maybe we won't because I think we're having a Vikings game. (laughs) Twin Cities News Talk.